0: I want to start by telling you about a, a young lady by the name of Allison. Allison didn't like the the spotlight. Literally, she didn't like spotlight. She was a junior in high school. She liked being on the school's drama team, but she didn't like being in the bright beam of a literal uh, spotlight. But she had to sometimes. She understood that there were times that required her, being on the drama team, to, to uh, be doused in that flood of illumination and despite her disdain for those center stage spotlight moments she understood their purpose she knew what it was what it was all about it was that purpose in fact it was not just the the light physically light but it was the purpose of the light that caused her to feel ill ill each and every time the spotlight came on her right we know what the purpose of a spotlight is we know the spotlight is shine on an object of emphasis right we know a spotlight is put on something that we want to draw everyone's eye at a particular time we want everyone to have their eyes drawn to that particular thing and that object is often brought to center stage right I, I don't put the pulpit over here right? Uh, now, I've seen some that do that, and it's a little odd. They have other things that go on over here, right? But, but this, is, this is center stage. This is uh, not necessarily a, a spotlight moment for me, but this is where the attention is supposed to be, right? I'll wait on some of you to look. Not kidding. <laughs> but we know that's what center stage, that's what the spotlight is all about. This is where everyone should focus their attention at a given time, In Mark chapter 5, there's a drama that unfolds in verses 21 through 43, and there are three scenes in this drama, and in each one of these scenes, the spotlight shines on an object in common. What I mean is that there is a thing that takes center stage in each of these three scenes, and it's no coincidence because it's the master teacher who's involved here. It's the master teacher who is at work in this instruction, in these moments, in each of these scenes. He's working here. So if you would, go ahead and make sure you flipped your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're not going to have anything on the screen tonight besides what you see right now. All right, we're going old school. You're going to have your Bibles cracked open and you're going to follow along, which I know a lot of you do anyway. Alright, but Mark chapter 5, take a look there. We're going to start reading in verse 21. We're going to go down through verse 43 in this message that I'm calling center stage faith. Because that's what's at center stage. Center stage faith. The scripture says there in Mark chapter 5 starting in verse 21, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him and so he stayed by the seashore one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking they came from the house of the synagogue official saying your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus overhearing what was being spoken said to the synagogue official do not be afraid any longer only believe. And he followed no one or and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in he said to them why make a commotion and weep the child has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him but putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was taking the child by the hand. He said to her Talitha kum which translated means little girl I say to you get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Now. This event in Jesus' life is recorded for us in three of the Gospels. We have it in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, right here in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, and also over in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. We have it in uh, three of the four Gospel uh, accounts, and each of these accounts shows us why Jesus deserves the title master teacher. Because if you didn't notice, there's a lot going on here. Jesus has a lot happening. Jesus had recently calmed the storm on the sea. You remember the story. He had recently calmed the sea, uh, the storm on the sea, and then cast the demons out of the man in the country of the Gerasenes. And now, coming back across the sea, did you catch that at the beginning? Coming across the sea again, coming back in the boat again. Now he's come back across the sea, and Jesus reaches land, and he's met by this large crowd that had gathered there. In Luke's account, Luke says that they welcomed him. Right? This is not a crowd waiting with rocks. <laughs> they welcomed him. Luke says, for they had all been waiting for him. And so this is the setting if you will for scene number 1. In scene number 1 we have Jairus coming up to Jesus, engulfed by this beachside crowd, falling down at his feet. In Matthew's account he uses a word that can mean to worship. That's how he fell down at his feet. And he earnestly, Jairus earnestly implores Jesus to help his daughter who is at the point, the very point of death, we know. Now, this Jairus, we need to understand, is not a common man, right? He's a, he's a notch or two, at least, above the common Jewish person. He held a position of prominence over the common Jewish person. He was a synagogue official, or we might call him a synagogue ruler. He was higher on the ladder than the common Jewish person. Higher on the pay scale, higher on the position scale, the influence scale, the social scale, uh, you name it, power scale, he, he was higher. He was on a higher rung of the ladder, you might say. And being part of that synagogue system, being part of the, the, being a synagogue official and part of that whole system made him part of a group that had mistreated and abused and hated Jesus, treated him more harshly than any other group at this point in Jesus' ministry. I'm not saying that about Jairus. I'm saying he was part of that group. But Jairus comes to Jesus differently. He comes to him humbly He bows at his feet humbly. And then he makes a statement that demonstrates some kind of faith. He said in verse 23, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that. So that she will get well and live. So here in scene number one, note takers, here's your first point. Here in scene number one, Jairus demonstrates faith to ask. You can just write down faith to ask. Jairus demonstrates faith to ask. Jairus had a lot to lose. Power, prominence, prosperity, position. There's all those Ps the preachers love, right? He he was staking everything on his belief that Jesus was his true hope. This was a statement, like I said, of some kind of faith. Now we might wonder, did Jairus even realize himself that he had this kind of faith? Or did this just kind of come out of his mouth all of a sudden? Was this only discovered in these particular circumstances? you know situations like this can do that situations like this dire circumstances like this can clear away the pride that sometimes clouds our vision the the selfishness that sometimes clouds our vision and that newfound clarity reveals the harsh reality that we're ultimately powerless and, and weak when it comes to solving the world's most well our life's most important problems right and then it feels like suddenly there's jesus right? We're, we're struggling along. We're, we're, we're trying to go against the current that's trying to, to, to send us down the river. And then suddenly, oh yeah. <laughs> whether it's we heard a sermon, whether it's we flip the calendar and there's an inspirational verse. I don't know what it is that hits you, but sometimes it just hits you. And you're like, Jesus, that's right. Jesus. Suddenly there he is. And, and then we're in one of these moments where we're thinking, The all-knowing, all-powerful, the one able to fix all of life's problems, the only ones that matter, he's here. He's right here for me. He can solve this for me. He can be part of this. Now, that kind of situation is fine for initial faith, right? For, For that initial moment of faith, that's fine. But as those of us who have been living for Jesus for more than a minute or two, this shouldn't be our story over and over and over again. We shouldn't be struggling along, floating along, swimming against the current, trying to climb the down escalator, you know, like trying to go up the down, you know, well, that shouldn't be our story before we turn to Jesus and, and ask him for help. We should have stronger faith in that. Guys, it is a frustrating and frankly faithless exercise Waiting for life to kick us in the teeth before we finally succumb and, and, and we come and, 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 and fall at Jesus' feet humbly and implore him to, to, to get involved, to help us. We shouldn't wait that long over and over and over again, right? I want to encourage you tonight in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. You've heard it a million times. Jesus invites every single one of us, saying, Come to me, all who are weary. And heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. And he says take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Look as far as I can tell. As far as we can tell. Jairus waited until his only begotten child. Child was at the point of death before he had the faith to ask Jesus for help. As far as we can tell, that's what it took before Jairus demonstrated the kind of faith it takes to ask Jesus to get involved, to include him in our, our, our issues, <laughs> in our life. And if that's a story of how you came to faith, no problem there at all. You won't get an argument, a fight, a, 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 a bad word at all, a negative word from me. There's no shame in that. But church, don't live in the utter chaos that pride and faithlessness creates. Don't live there. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. It's too painful, and it's not what Jesus tells us to do. That's not how we're supposed to live our lives as Christian. He invites you to come to him, to get in the yoke with him and to work with him. He's telling us to partner with him. Partner with him daily. He says if we'll do that, he'll give us rest. He says that we'll learn from him, and he says, this is the biggie, he will give us rest for our souls. We'll find rest for our soul. That's a deep rest. That's a a, a pervading rest, right? That that doesn't let circumstances interrupt our rest. That's a, a deep level of rest. Keep that in mind as we have a quick scene change. Guys, scene number two comes almost out of nowhere, doesn't it? As Jesus has left to go with Jairus to help his daughter, verse 24 of our text says, and he, that is Jesus, went off with him. That's Jairus. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So I want you to picture in your mind's eye right now, I want you to picture this kind of hustle and bustle. They're on the beach. Jairus comes and says what he says, and Jesus says, yes, I'll go. They take off and the crowd isn't staying behind. Right? Jesus is alongside Jairus. They're walking, heading in his direction, toward his house, that is. And the crowd doesn't stay behind. The crowd comes with him. The crowd follows Jesus in Jairus. And more than just following, it's to the point that they're pressing in on him. Right? This is like a, a celebrity moment, you know, where you see them walking around, the photographers and the, the fanboys and girls, and everybody's just squeezing in on a celebrity. This is kind of one of those moments And in the midst of this, a struggling woman saw an opportunity. She had been experiencing a hemorrhage for 12 years. Bleeding wouldn't stop for 12 years. And I want you to think about the implications there. What all does that mean? Well, according to Jewish law, she'd be considered unclean, right? And so that meant that she couldn't touch anyone. She couldn't be around people. She couldn't worship with her people. If she had a husband, she couldn't be with him. It's no wonder verse 26 of our text reveals to us that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had. I would too. That's a miserable life to live for 12 years. This poor woman was unclean. She was excluded. She was exhausted. She was outcast. She was desperate, destitute, financially deficient. She had spent 12 years in this miserable condition. She had spent all of her money on this miserable condition, and now she was just plain spent. The Bible says she spent all her money on these physicians, these doctors that did her no good. In fact, she only got worse over this period of time. Things didn't get better. Things didn't stay the same. They got worse. She just wanted to be restored, right? That's what she's looking for. She's looking to be restored to just normalcy. just, Just normal life. Right? She wasn't asking for anything terribly special. Just get me back to normal. Well, this woman had heard about Jesus, we know, and because of it, verse 27 says, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And verse 28 says, for she thought, so here's why she did it. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And she did get well, right? Verse 29 says, immediately. She got well immediately, but something else happened immediately. There's a few different immediately's in this passage. Something else happened immediately too, didn't it? Jesus immediately knew something had happened. Jesus immediately wanted to know who did this. Jesus knew what had happened and he wanted this person who had touched him to identify herself. And now we can understand the disciples response to this, can't we? Did, did you hear it? Or do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus, who touched me? And what do the disciples say? Jesus, seriously, we're in the middle of this huge crowd that is like this mob walking with us and you want to know who touched you? Everybody's touching you. And they've got a point, right? I can't really argue with that. They have a point. Everyone was touching Jesus. Maybe, maybe that is actually a really good reason to ask the question, what was different about this one? What, what was different about this particular touch? Why did this garner Jesus' attention? The disciples were right. But it maybe didn't... Um, maybe what they wanted to do wasn't right. You know, let's just move on, right? You get the vibe. They just said, like, everybody's touching you. Come on, don't worry about it. Let's go. They were right that everybody's touching him. But they were wrong about wanting to just shuffle Jesus on down the line if, that's, if we're reading into that right. Instead, we need to pause and we need to ask... Why did Jesus stop on this ga- this person, this gal? What, what, what was special? Well, Jesus wanted everybody to know the answer to that question. That's why he called for this woman who touched him. He wasn't trying to put her on the spot or embarrass her or criticize her or rebuke her publicly. This woman had faith, but also mistakenly believed that she could secretly receive a blessing from the Lord. And so for her own understanding... And also for the good of the crowd, for them to learn, Jesus wanted this woman to publicly confess her faith in him. So here in scene number two, this bleeding woman demonstrates, point number two, faith to receive. Faith to receive. Guys, believing Jesus can do what doctors can't do requires faith. Believing Jesus will do what money won't do requires faith. Believing Jesus wants to do what others are unwilling to do, that requires faith. When Jesus called for this woman, Luke says in his account of this story, in Luke chapter 8 verse 47, he says she came trembling and fell down before him and, listen, listen to the words, declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed this woman here, she publicly confessed her problem and her plan. She gave her personal testimony here. And most importantly, though, she publicly confessed her faith in Jesus to heal her. And Jesus did. He did heal her. We know from the moment this afflicted woman touched Jesus that she was healed. Again, the scripture says immediately. But Even after all of this takes place, the healing, the confession, the the scripture tells us more. Jesus addresses the woman after this, after the confession of faith, and he says to her some important words. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Now that phrase, made you well, can be translated as, it can mean, and it is translated elsewhere in the Bible, as saved you. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Or maybe, daughter, your faith has saved you. Perhaps there's more, something more going on here that prompted Jesus' additional statement after daughter, your faith has made you well. He says what? Go in peace. Exactly. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Uh, Over in Luke chapter 7. Not talking about this same woman. Luke does talk about her in Luke chapter 8. I I told you that. But in Luke chapter 7, a different woman. The woman, uh, I believe is the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Different woman. In Luke chapter 7. In verse 47, I believe. Jesus points out specifically to Peter. That this woman's sins are many. And he says he's going to forgive him, right? It, well, actually, he says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And then he turns to her and tells her in verse 48 that her sins are forgiven. So we know this woman had sins forgiven, okay? You understand? Keep that in mind. Her sins have been forgiven. And then when we get to Luke chapter 7, verse 50, he tells the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, does that sound like your faith has made you well? Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Does that sound like the exact same words? Did you know it's exactly the same words? Jesus used exactly the same phrase. The translators were just more confident because of the context saying that her sins had been forgiven. The translators were more confident to, to translate uh, the, that phrase in the Greek to it saved you rather than made you well. They just weren't quite confident to do it over here in our text in Mark chapter 5 but it very well could be that this bleeding woman in Matthew chapter 9 Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 was healed of her physical affliction and also forgiven. And maybe that is why Jesus said go in peace. Church let me encourage you uh, again Jesus doesn't want to heal and help and forgive from a distance. Jesus doesn't want to heal help and forgive uh, secretly you can't approach him like this woman. Right? Jesus doesn't want to heal, help, and forgive without an encounter. Without an exchange. Without an experience. Without a relationship. Really. Right? The afflicted woman had faith in Jesus to help her. And she wanted what he had to offer. But Jesus wanted an encounter. He wanted an expression from her, an exchange between him and her. He wanted her to confess her faith and tell others how she had been healed and about her faith that she had in Jesus. She needed to confess it for herself. Others needed to hear it. It's a win-win unless she stayed quiet and tried to hide what had happened. Church, I, I think what we can learn from this at a minimum is that confessing our faith in Christ, not just before we jump in the water, but confessing our faith as a lifestyle, our faith in Christ, I think that confession is far more significant, far more powerful, far more beautiful than we in the church often give it credit for. It's just like the third step, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just a step on a chart in many cases in our minds. But I think it's a lot more than that. Think about it. Before this woman could be made well, made whole, saved possibly even, Jesus wanted her to come to him and confess her faith. Before the Ethiopian eunuch accessed forgiveness through baptism, what did he do? He confessed his faith in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verses 32 and 33, everyone who confesses me before men, not confessed me, but it's a present continuing action. Everyone who does this is a lifestyle. Everyone who confesses me before men. I will also confess him. Before my father who is in heaven. That's powerful. <laughs> but whoever denies me before men. Equally powerful. I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Church you can't receive from Jesus. If you won't confess Jesus. You can't receive from Jesus. If you're going to be ashamed. going to be quiet. going to try to be secret about it. It doesn't work like that. Now don't hear what I'm not saying Jesus isn't this cosmic vending machine you know where you, you you get confess him and then you spin the handle and then out pops a blessing that's not what I'm saying and that's not how this works at all because we know we have to we have to kind of temper this with other scripture like John chapter 14 verse 15 that Anthony mentioned this morning I mention all the time Jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commandments. So there's, there's, there's a deeper level uh, of stuff going on here, deeper level of understanding. It's not just emotional. It's just not mind. It's mind and emotions. We've got to love Jesus. The question is, do we love him enough to confess him? Will our faith, even though at times it is admittedly fearing and trembling like the afflicted woman, will it bring us to a point of publicly confessing Him publicly confessing that we believe in him as the Christ the son of the living God and not just doing it when and where we're comfortable but confessing him before the crowds like this woman falling down confessing who he is what he's done in our lives. Now as we come to scene number three finally our focus turns back to Jairus and his dying 12 year old daughter. Now if you're wondering about Jairus and his little girl and if we'd ever get back to that I can assure you Jairus was at this time when this was you know in this setting when this was actually going on Jairus was a lot more concerned about if we'd ever get back to him and his dying daughter than any of us here tonight (laughs) right. We know that for sure. Can you imagine Can you imagine this situation? What must Jairus have thought when the crowd began moving with him on the way to the house, pressing in? What, What must he have thought when they started pressing in? What must he have thought when Jesus stopped and said, who touched me in the midst of this crowd? We thought the disciples were a little worked up. Imagine how Jairus felt when Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And imagine when, when this woman fell at his feet and started this confession, starts just blurting out all this stuff. I mean, it's great. It's wonderful to hear this about Jesus. But remember, my daughter is dying. I came here because I'm desperate. What must Jairus have been thinking? What would have been going through his mind? And then it comes. Right? Verse 35 tells us that while Jairus was still, or while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, someone from Jairus' home came to deliver the news. It's official now. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Have you ever experienced verse 35? I mean, not those exact literal uh, details of the story, but I mean, You've experienced verse 35. You're, you're waiting with Jesus, so to speak, right? right. You've, you've asked him. You've had the faith to ask him into this situation. And you're waiting for action. You're, you're waiting for something to be done uh, that, that's, you know, it's outside of your control and you're counting on the Lord for this. You're waiting. And you're, you're in, in a way, escorting him to the scene of your problem like Jairus was trying to do with Jesus. And then the news comes, the worst has happened. The thing you wanted Jesus to prevent has now come to be. It, it's already here. The moment you wanted to avoid has arrived. The pain you wanted Jesus to block is now pulsing through you from head to toe. The despair that you hope to stave off, it, it's bearing down on you with full force at this point. And you think, why trouble the teacher anymore? Some of you, I'm sure, have lived verse 35. You've, you've been there and perhaps you've thought, why trouble the teacher anymore? What, what more can be done? What I had hoped for, the plans I had, the the solution I had in mind—it's no good now. Can't even happen, right? Well, why trouble the teacher anymore? The teacher answered that question, right? Jesus overheard this conversation that was going on, and he told Jairus in verse 36. He said, "Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe." Right? Don't stop. Right? You believed before, and I told you I was going to do it only believe. So here in scene number three, the kind of faith that is brought into the spotlight at center stage is faith to persevere. Point number three, (laughs) faith to persevere. Jairus already demonstrated faith to ask, right? To humble himself and to ask. He had even witnessed the faith of the afflicted woman to have the, the faith to receive healing. And now Jairus himself needed to demonstrate a continuing faith, an enduring faith, a persevering faith because and this is important you guys here's why because what often looks like the end to us in our minds with our understanding it it isn't the end for Jesus It just isn't and that may sound cliche to you but you've got we've got to get it through our heads that that's the truth of the matter the Lord we serve is either as powerful as we say he is or he's not And so, if this sounds cliche, let's try to figure out a way to put the power back into it, because it's true. What often looks like the end to us, it's not the end to Jesus. He's still going to do what he said he would do. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe, right? When Jesus finally arrived at Jairus' home, the funeral had already started, in essence, right? The, the hired mourners were already there on the scene, already doing their job, weeping and wailing and just waiting for the paycheck. And Jesus said, why make a commotion and weep? The child, she's not dying. She's just asleep. Now, of course, they laughed at that, right? We read that. They knew good and well the child was dead, that she had died. She, she had. In our minds, the way we understand death in this world, she had died. She was dead. But given Jesus' perspective, the way Jesus looks at a life, his perspective and his ability, it was as though the child was only asleep. And so he could truthfully, realistically say, she's just asleep, even though to us she was really dead. To him, she's just asleep because he had already said, he had already pronounced, right? It's like in the Old Testament scriptures when prophecy is put in the present tense because it's that sure to be done. Jesus had already said it was going to be done. So to him, it was so sure to be done that he could just say, she's just asleep. I'm about to go in and wake her up. Just chill out, everybody, right? So Jesus had all the, the mockers leave the room. So it was just Jesus, Jairus, and his wife, and then Peter, James, and John who went in with him, his companions, the scripture says. And all Jesus did was take the little girl's hand and tell her to get up. Right? Little girl, I say to you, get up. And then there it was, 12 years old, restored to her parents, restored to life, up and walking around, and apparently hungry. Right? Jesus said, she needs something to eat. Fix her sandwich. He didn't say that exactly, but we know. <laughs> you know, sometimes we pray for the Lord to get involved in a situation and we pray that he'll restore someone. We pray that a family member will surrender to him. We ask him to heal people of sickness and injuries. We pray that he'll keep certain people safe. And if we're honest, we often find ourselves telling others about how the Lord's timing is not our timing. Be patient. The Lord's ways are not our ways. You know, hey, keep an eye out. He, who knows how he might do this? Hey, the Lord, we tell him, the, the Lord is working all things out to the ultimate good. We know that's the truth. That's how it is. That's how he works. But there are times that try our faith. It's easy to say it to other people. Sometimes it's hard even to tell other people. But we do it. But then sometimes it's our faith that's being tried. And we kind of are singing a whole different song. Right? And I get it. You get it. Right? None of us can sit here and and say like, well, why do you do that? I get it. Mm. But we need to encourage each other to have a little more faith. To have a lot more faith. To have strong faith, right? We have these moments that test the endurance of our faith. How long can we go? How far can we go? Do we have faith that perseveres? We need to. And if we're a little unsure, if we're a little unsteady, if we think we're we're on shaky ground when it comes to that kind of stuff, well, well, then we know what we need to work on. We know what we need to set about uh, strengthening in our lives. What we need to talk with our close Christian friends about. What we need to be praying about. What we need to to, to read scriptures about. To to strengthen that. We need faith that perseveres. So can I encourage us all once more. What we have here in scene number three. Is a man whose only begotten child has died. While he was waiting on Jesus to help someone else. To heal someone else. To give somebody else peace. in, In the moment right. They got to jump the line. And this man's concerns over his daughter looked like they had entered into the realm of worst case scenario, right? His daughter was dead by all accounts. Jesus told him though, do not be afraid. Only believe. What's Jesus saying? Keep your faith. You had faith to ask. Keep your faith now. I told you I would come. I told you, yes, I will come and touch the little girl so that she won't die, so that she will live. Like Jairus said, he had the faith in Jesus to do. And Jesus said, yes, and he went. He's saying, keep your faith. Luke records Jesus' words to Jairus like this. He says, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. So church, this should encourage us to have faith that perseveres. Faith that perseveres when our doctor can't fix it. Faith that perseveres when our adult children aren't cutting it. When our patients can't handle it. When our checking account can't cover it. When our government can't solve it. When our wisdom isn't enough for it. Or even when our church isn't up for it. Do not be afraid. Only believe. The master teacher here in this epic three scene drama has unfolded these three lessons for us. Have faith to ask. Right? Have faith to invite Jesus, to, to partner with Jesus on a daily basis. Partner with the Lord in every task, every single day. Confess faith to receive. Right? Have that kind of faith that confesses your belief in Christ so that you will receive. Love him enough to publicly confess who he is and what he's done in your life. And then go in peace like the woman was able to do. And then finally, develop this faith that perseveres, that doesn't give up, that doesn't let go. Don't get impatient. Don't doubt. Even when things look impossible, remember, God's going to raise the dead. Now, if that doesn't get you uh, ready to persevere through anything, I don't know what could. God's going to raise the dead. He raised this little girl from the dead. He's going to raise people from the dead in the end. So what on earth are we going to let separate us from our faith in Christ? I hope nothing. And we're going to set about it in 2023. We're going to work on it real hard in 2023.